Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. It's another wonderful uh, uh, Bible study. We are um, looking forward uh, to this, uh, to talk about sanctuary. Not many people are uh, mentioning this these days, but uh, I believe we are going to learn a lot of things. I would like to welcome uh, our panel today. I'm starting with uh, Brenton. Good to have you with us, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. We are looking forward to presenting this very important subject. And also good to have you with us, Helen. Thank you, Nick. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick. It's always, always, I say, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Lynn. Well, thank you for the welcome, Nick. It's a privilege for us listeners to share the Word of God. And I thank God that he has given us his word, that we can understand his wonderful love for us. I hope you understand that too. Beautiful. Ken, it's good to have you with us today, and thank you for uh, preparing this uh, study and uh, facilitating uh, today. Uh, Welcome to the program, and um, over to you. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here with the panel. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us for another Bible study on the new covenant God spoke about in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. If you have been following this study, you will have learned that part of the old covenant was to be done away with, which was the sacrifice of animals, which people had to bring to the temple regularly when they sinned. But now God was to give an amazing gift. He was going to send his son Jesus to be a once-only sacrifice for all people who would believe in him and follow him. We heard that the Ten Commandments were still to stay, as we see in Matthew 5 and verse 18, and were not done away with as many people believe today, but still stand as God's holy law and is spoken of a number of times in the New Testament. It is also important to note in Revelation 22 and verse 12 to 14, Jesus tells us he is coming to receive those who have the faith of Jesus and keep his commandments. So do not be deceived. The Ten Commandments still stand and will be the benchmark for all people will be judged by. Today we're looking at the new covenant sanctuary. But before we start, I will ask Joe to open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come together to discuss your word, to gain new insights into Bible truths. We pray that you will be among our number. Give us wisdom and give us understanding as we consider some of these important topics, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. The earthly sanctuary. Why did God tell the people to build an earthly sanctuary or temple in the wilderness? And was there any special requirements the Lord told them to do? Ben, would you like to kick this one off? All right. Well, this is a double-barrel question to start with. We read in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, the Lord said through Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. So what was the reason God wanted the people to make a sanctuary? Well, he said here, 
that I may dwell among you. Now, this reminds me of two other texts. One back at creation, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and the Lord sought Adam and Eve's company. And they had sinned and they were hiding. And he called out, where are you? So the Lord likes to be among his people. But not only that, if we go to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, there's an announcement. And the prophet John said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. God has a desire to be with his creation, the people he created, because we as moral beings can appreciate a good God. So the sanctuary was built as a special meeting place between God and man. But uh, we learn in Hebrews chapter 8 that God has a sanctuary in heaven or a tabernacle, if you like, or a temple, and um, there are functions performed, which we're going to deal with as we go through this study, that uh, relate to man too. And I'll just read Hebrews 8 verse 2. It says, now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, a true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Know what this tells me? That God is for us and not against us. And some people get the idea that God is exacting a, a tyrant if you do something wrong. Zap, you're, you're done for. But no, God goes to great lengths to communicate with his people. Thank you, Len. It's really amazing when you look at this, try to get your head around that the God of this universe is so madly in love with his people that he wants to be among them. It really is fantastic. What I would like to also add here and or emphasize a little bit more on verse 9 from um, Exodus chapter 25, which Len read. What stood up for me is that God said, God said these words, make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Did you see here the particular thing? God wants the people of Israel, I mean, talking to Moses here, to make that tabernacle or the sanctuary exactly like the one which God showed them. Do you reckon, is that an importance? No, I think the important thing here uh, in what Len has read, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, is this. Len rightly alluded to the fact that way back in Eden, God had face-to-face communion with his people. As a result of sin, at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, we find that God drove them. It actually uses that word in many modern translations. He drove them out of the Garden of Eden and he placed angels at the entrance to the garden to stop them from returning there again. Now, uh, in our previous study, we have studied the fact that 
God said that he wanted to make them his special people. And they said, all the Lord has said we will do. And so he entered into a special covenant with them. Exodus chapter 25 is based around what God is saying to Moses on Mount Sinai. What's important about this is God is really saying, I want you to make, set me up a tent because essentially the tabernacle was a tent. Can you imagine the situation when God originally met with man? It was in a perfect garden of Eden. Now he wants to meet with them in a tent in a hot, dusty wilderness. And I think it's very important that God's presence is available anywhere and God is not stressed about the fact that now his sanctuary is going to be carted around by the Levites from place to place in the wilderness. It's hot, it's dry, it's dusty, and yet God is still present with them. Even though sin has come in and marred that face-to-face communion with God, any Israelite could come to the tabernacle, look at the tabernacle, and know that God's dwelling place was in there in the most holy place. I think that's a wonderful indication of God's desire to be with us at all times. Thank you, Brenton. Nick? Yes, and uh, Brenton, as uh, I mentioned a bit earlier, looking at the passage in Exodus 25, I believe is that when mentioned even the word furnishing, it's about the importance of each department of whatever happened in the tabernacle. Because I heard about this, that God cannot be contained in a sure. room or in a temple or in whatever. Because God is so big. And people will say, how can be in heaven a tabernacle like the one on the earth? The important is, we are not talking necessarily about sizes. I don't know that. Uh, we are talking about each department, the importance of each department in that tabernacle. Now, there are at least three very controversial things in the Christendom today. And one of them is the sanctuary. There are others like uh, hell and uh, the state of the dead. But what we are looking into today to understand the covenant of God with his people and particularly the sanctuary I think we'll learn something which probably we didn't look at this in in this way before. And I'm hoping that the Bible will help us today to really set up a very good foundation for this. Nick, can I suggest to you and also to to Ken that um, the furnishings of the sanctuary and their functions are all related to relationship. We need to start looking more at the sanctuary from the point of view of God's dwelling place and his relationship to human beings and uh, us as sinners. I think that's the overriding picture of the sanctuary. Some good information there, thank you. Now, how did God reveal his presence to the people in the sanctuary? Helen, would you like to tell us that one? Love to. If we turn to Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, it's explaining here that the tabernacle was God's home or that tent was God's home on earth. He filled it with his glory and it was an overpowering sense of his presence. I've thought about this quite a number of times, you know, that it says in there, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I don't know about you, but... Sometimes when I look at a sun sunrise or a sunset or even a rainbow, I stand there in awe of our great creator. And here we've got God's glory in the actual tabernacle. Must have been an awe-inspiring 
sight to see. You know, it's not we, we kind of think of a cloud as being dark and gloomy, but it says there that God's glory, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. How amazing would that have been to have seen? But it also goes on saying Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it. And again, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I, I think we need to be filled with the glory of God. So when people look at us, they don't even see us. And I, I believe that's probably what happened at the tabernacle. True. Thank you, Helen. Why was it made portable? Because we know that the Israelites moved quite a lot in the 40 years were in the desert. And how did the Israelites know when to move it to another location? Yeah, well, it's interesting that when um, it was all set up, it was set up with poles, you know. They were even instructed on how to put it all together to move. And when, in, in fact, I think it's in Exodus forty thirty six, it says, now whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on their journey following it. So there was the indication when the cloud lifted, they were to move. And it says in 37, but if the cloud did not rise, they remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it and it continued throughout all their journeys. I find that absolutely fascinating that they were, they had a direct sign of when they were to move and when they were to go and God led them all the way. You know, there was no question in their mind they could see the cloud and they, there was no question in their mind when they moved. And so those poles that were permanent were always there ready to move. Ah, that must have been an amazing sight to witness that mm. standing around and seeing the, the cloud of the Lord by day and a fiery Bar at night over the, the, the tent. That must have been absolutely awesome. Lane, you had something to add? Yes, I think it would have been wonderful for people to realise that the physical presence of the Lord was with them mm. and that when the cloud lifted, being an indication that they should move. Now, the question is, where would they move? North, south, west, east? No, the cloud would lift and move in a certain direction. The Lord was leading them through this wilderness experience. And that was very beautiful. Mommy. Now, we don't so much have a cloud, but the Lord is with us. And the Lord has given us his word to understand, to, to know his will, and to know which direction we should take. So I see a modern um, analogy here with the fact that we have the word of God with us, to direct our lives. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, said the psalmist. And we need to appreciate the fact that we have God's word to give us direction in our lives. Thank you, Len. Uh, Nick, you wanted to add something? Yes, I just want to uh, have uh, that spiritual application because you asked the question about the why was that made to be mobile, you know? and to move around. And it came in my mind, the discussion with, of Jesus with the uh, woman at the well, when the woman was trying to say, oh, you Jewish people, you worship on that uh, place and we worship on the other place. And Jesus said that neither, you know, but in heart to worship, to have God, uh, God promised to the Israelites that he will be with them. And God showed that 
to them in a visible form. Now, also, I'm just quoting here that Moses said at some point in time, God, if you don't go with us, please don't let us go from here. And I pray that prayer today many times, you know, in these days. God, please help us. If you don't go with us, don't let us go from here. Which means in the way you want to go in your journey, in your uh, relationship with God, as Brenton just mentioned a bit earlier, that all of this, the pattern and all those things about the sanctuary is to build on that relationship with God, to understand that God is an indispensable part of our life, whatever we do in these days, even in the 21st century, that we should ask the same question, God, please don't let us go if you're not going with us. Thank you, Brenton. Uh, just quickly on, on that one, um, talking about the direction, Len mentioned the direction that the cloud lifted and that went um, in a direction that perhaps they were not familiar with. I see a very strong parallel between what happened when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. He said, I will take you to a land which I will show you. In other words, Abram, who later became Abraham, went exactly where God directed. He didn't have a compass. He didn't have a GPS. He went where God directed him. Now, here in the wilderness, exactly the same feature is taking place. The Israelites did not move till the cloud lifted. They did not know which direction the cloud was going to go in. They simply followed the cloud. Abraham is described as the father of the faithful. I believe God is wanting the children of Israel to develop the kind of faith that Abraham had and to simply accept that he is leading and to follow wherever he leads. The principle today is we need that in our own lives. The principle of following wherever the Lord leads, without murmuring, without complaining, without questioning, simply accepting when it's clear that God is leading, where to follow. Very good point, Brenton. Now, when we look at this tabernacle, what sacrifices were to be offered at the temple? Would you like to answer that, Brenton? Yes, um, primarily in Leviticus 1, 1 to 4, God gave very specific instructions. He said um, something along the lines of, um, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, they were to bring an animal offering. Now, Leviticus 1, 1 to 4, Ken primarily is talking about sacrificial offerings. It's talking about offerings for sin. And there were various animals used. Uh, most people would be aware that a lamb was used. Sometimes a bull was used. In the Day of Atonement services, goats were used. In the time of Christ, uh, when his parents went to the temple, I think they either used doves or pigeons because the poor could not afford the cost of an animal. So therefore, they could only afford what um, their meagre resources would allow them to do. But all of these things... Um, point forward to the fact that um, it was necessary for an animal, whatever animal it might be, it was necessary for an animal to be sacrificed and the blood to be applied in order for the sin to be forgiven. And the whole principle of Leviticus, the whole book of Leviticus, is about the various ceremonies and processes and sacrifices that um, God had put in place for his people. But you know what? You can understand all these things and know all these things and not see the forest for the trees. 
I think this is what happened in the time of Christ. They were so wound up in their sacrifices and things that they did not see the great sacrifice that was to be made. But we'll get to that further on in our study. Thank you, Brendan. Joe, I want you to add something extra to that as well. Yes, well, to the modern mind, um, I guess animal sacrifices are really horrific. And, you know, it it, it sounds so barbaric. And yet uh, this was something that God had used to teach the Israelites the that sin costs it costs the life of an animal, an innocent animal. And I guess it foreshadowed Christ's sa- uh, sacrifice on our behalf. Um, and I'm sure this is going to be mentioned and has been mentioned. But important thing to remember that those animals, you know, um, most of the offerings were actually eaten by the people themselves or the priests and the, the skins were used. So these animals, it wasn't just a blood fest. It wasn't just animal animals wasted. You know, I think it was only the sin offering that was consumed completely on the altar, whereas, I mean, consumed as in burned entirely. But there were other sacrifices like the fellowship offering, which the uh, the people partook of. So it, you know, it while it is gruesome to our minds, our modern minds, um, it was it was a uh, it wasn't a waste, and it was a lesson to teach um, the Israelites, and particularly, I think. Brenton, I'm not sure if you mentioned, but it was God was very specific with what kinds of animals were, yeah. and they were all clean, clean animals. Mm-hmm. So there weren't any pigs or camels or anything like that. So very specific about which animals to be used for what. And so, they were without blemish as well, Joe. <laughs> absolutely, because why yeah. they pointed to the perfect sacrifice. Um, and um, so, yeah, that's something to keep in mind. They weren't a waste. They were to teach valuable lessons as well as um, also provide a meal. Joe, just on, just on that one to add, because I think you, you touch on a very sensitive point there, because it's a lot of talk around uh, today in the, in the times we live about uh, animal sacrifices and uh, no, even eating. You know, there are lots of people not eating any animal products. Uh, just uh, because of that, but they don't have any religious or religion connection. Yeah. And what I want to say, because I think you mentioned that that was gruesome, you know, and it is. I grew up at the farm when I saw, you know, 50, 100 lambs sacrificed at once. I could not take it, even though I was eating the lamb, which we sacrificed. But how more gruesome was to see the lamb of God. And then you said something very special, that even the sacrifices or for their food, maintaining their life, if you like, how much more through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ mm. were to maintain our spiritual life. I mean, to, I, I think, you see, today we are going to look at the symbolical application of all of these uh, elements, uh, and particularly in the sanctuary, to improve our relationship with God. Yeah, definitely. And the Passover lamb represented Jesus. Yes. You know, so this was very important. And you wanted to add to that? Yes, I think I'll probably be repeating something that's been said, but I'll do this in order to sort of um, make a conclusion. The animal sacrifices offered at the 
tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle, as have already been said, were clean animals. There were no pigs sacrificed. There were no rabbits sacrificed and so on. They're clean animals and I remember Brenton saying they were without defect. And these all pointed, of course, to Jesus. So all this stuff we're talking about with regard to the old temple or the old um, tabernacle were typology of what was to become in the future with regard to Jesus. It helps us understand better. Now, I know there are many people who don't even bother reading about this. They say that stuff is all boring. In actual fact, it's very meaningful. It helps us understand the sacrifice that Jesus made so much better. Were these sacrifices to be permanent or were they leading to another permanent way to be accepted by God? Len, would you like to look into that one? Well, yes, it's uh, really in addition to what I was already saying. The sacrifices were made one after another, uh, pointing to Jesus, but he didn't need to die millions of times. He died once and for all as our perfect Redeemer. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3, it makes mention of this, and this might be a bit surprising in what we've just said, Hebrews 10, verse 3, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and any other things that were offered and were recommended for that to take away sins. Why? Well, of course, um, an animal is a, what I would say, a lower life form than we human beings. An animal doesn't have morals as we human beings have, but they all pointed, and this is the main point, they pointed to Jesus. Now, uh, we know from Isaiah how that it says, Jesus took our pain, our suffering, our death, uh, our sin rather, and he took the consequences of all that. Thank you, Liam. We see these sacrifices were pointing to the coming of Jesus who took away the sins of the world and would be the only acceptable sacrifice to God for men's sins. Do we see someone in the New Testament speaking about this before it took place? Brenton, would you like to look at yes, that? Yes, we do, uh, Ken. Uh, he's, he has a name. His name uh, that we commonly know him as is John the Baptist. And the text uh, from John one twenty nine says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, we know as a result of this statement of John's, the two disciples, Christ's first two disciples, began to follow Jesus when John pointed him out as the Lamb of God. And those two disciples were Andrew and Philip. And it's interesting that um, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You would have thought that all the people gathered on the bank of the Jordan to be baptised or to listen 
would immediately recognise in this uh, trumpet-like announcement that the sacrificial lamb that all of their services had pointed to for over a thousand years was finally here. But it doesn't appear as though it registered um, terribly strongly with most of them. And as a consequence of that, Ken, right at the end of Christ's ministry, after three and a half years of ministering to people, he said in Matthew 26, verse 26, at what we call the Passover supper, when he took the, the cup and the bread, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, some versions say the remission of sins. But here again, at the end of his ministry, as at the part of the beginning of his ministry, John announces his role, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, a few people latched on to that and began to follow him. Right at the end of his ministry, he says again, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what do you make of that verse? You make the, of that verse that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world, but the term many would suggest to me that some would accept it and some would not. Uh, therefore, it is available to all those who, who choose to accept it. And it's just the same today, Ken. Uh, when you talk to people about salvation and talk to them about the fact that Christ shed his blood on Calvary for our sins, some people are deeply touched by it and others seem to be hardly moved by it at all. And um, all you can do really in those circumstances is recognise again in your own life that Christ died on Calvary for me. When you really begin to accept that, I believe you are more effective in sharing that with others. You are more effective in stating, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brethren, it really is totally amazing that God sent his only son to die for the likes of me, a complete sinner. Yes. And I just find that absolutely awesome. And yes. it just goes beyond my understanding. It just, it's amazing. Joe, how do we know Jesus willingly laid down his life for all sinners? Well, we know because it tells us in Scripture, particularly John ten eighteen, where it says, no man taketh it from me, referring to his life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. I know that the amplified version of the Bible says, but I lay it down voluntarily. Jesus had power to lay it down and take it up. And so it was voluntarily that he did it. No one coerced him. No one pressured him. But for the love of mankind, he willingly gave himself. And also in John fifteen thirteen, it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. And, you know, it was, it was prompted by love rather than coercion or an angry father or um, whatever we might think, but it was love that caused Christ to willingly lay down his life. There's also a text in Galatians. It says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, gave voluntarily for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So God was also willingly giving his son. I mean, how easy would it be to give your son or your daughter? Wouldn't you step in their place and say, look, take me, take me, 
Mm. You know, I think as a parent, the last thing you'd want to do is hand over your child. You'd sooner die yourself. And so here we have both the love of the father and the love of the son being demonstrated um, and explained in the scriptures so that we would know what prompted this great sacrifice. Wow, it, it really, really is an amazing sacrifice that Jesus True. has given for us. Mm. Helen, as we know, in heaven there's more than God and Jesus. He's surrounded by millions and millions of angels. Have they, have they any interest in what's going on in this world and what Christ has done for us? I, I believe so. If we look into Revelation, and um, I went back and looked at Revelation 4.11, and it's actually how they were praising God for creation. You know, that was a worship. That was a meditation. Mm. And as you continue on in Chapter 5, they're also joined there. You know, if you look in um, verses 8 to 13, it mentions, and he took the scroll and four living beings, 24 elders, fell down before the Lord. They had a harp. They held gold bowls filled with incense, which were the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. And the song they were singing was really because of what Christ did, that he sacrificed. And if we look into that, we can see that the song of God's people as well, they were praising God's work. You know, it says in in um, the verse 9, it says he was killed, he was ransomed them with his blood. He gathered them into a kingdom. He made them priests, appointed them to reign on the earth. Jesus had already died and paid the penalty for sin. And now he was gathering the kingdom, you know, and, and here we, they were worshipping God and praising him for what he had done, what he is doing and what he will do for all those who trust in him. You know, I think when we actually meditate and we think about these things, the glorious future that awaits each one of us, we'll find strength to meet the present difficulties that we have, and we too shall join in praise in heaven with the angels. But there will be one song the angels cannot sing, and that will be the song of the redeemed. But can you imagine the, the, the choirs? And I mean, I love music, and it's going to be glorious. Yeah. It really is amazing. There is a song, uh, it's called Holy, Holy, Holy. I think that's its name, and it goes, Holy, Holy, Holy is what the angels sing. And I hope to join them to make the courts of heaven ring. And when it comes to redemption story, they will fold their wings, for angels never knew the joy that our redemption brings. Oh, amazing. Boy, Jesus, the new covenant and the high priest. Brenton, what's this all about? Uh, there's uh, six verses in Hebrews chapter 8, and the writer of Hebrews basically summarises the first seven chapters of Hebrews by making this comment. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. Then he goes on to talk about who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. He talks about how priests had gifts and sacrifices that they were to offer. Then he goes on to say that if Christ were here on earth today, in the ordinary sanctuary system, he wouldn't be a priest because the priest came from the line of Aaron. They were the ones that were appointed. But because Christ is two things, 
He's both the priest, but also the sacrifice. He combines both of those aspects in his ministry today. He was the sacrifice on Calvary for our sins. Our sins were nailed to Calvary in Christ, I believe. And in heaven, he is ministering his blood uh, for each person who chooses to accept him. It's hard to get your head around the concept that you could be both the sacrifice and also the one who officiates the benefits of the sacrifice. But in Christ, we have that. And beyond that, in other places, it tells us that, as Helen said earlier on, that when we struggle in life with um, difficulties, particularly spiritual uh, attacks and difficulties that we have, we have a high priest, we're told in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, who knows what we're going through because he has been through all these things himself. I think sometimes we need to recognize when we're really struggling spiritually, instead of looking at the difficulties that we're struggling with, we need to look up and say, I have a high priest who went through all of this, who knows the answers. He was successful. He was victorious. And he says to me, Brenton, give me your problems. I'll sort them out. But you need to give them to me and you need to leave them with me. And I'm ministering my blood on your behalf in the sanctuary right now. I believe he says that to each of our panel members and all of those who are listening as well. My blood is just as available today as it was then. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the vastly superior sacrifice of Christ on Calvary and his ability to be able to do this and minister it to everybody who chooses to accept him. I think Len used the term earlier on, once for all. It was only necessary to sacrifice once and the benefits of his sacrifice can be applied today in 2021 to anybody who chooses to accept it. It simply relies on us opening our hearts and saying, Lord, come in, apply your blood that you shed on Calvary and that you are now ministering in the high priestly sanctuary in heaven. Please administer that blood on my behalf today. And we are told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think we need to spend a bit more time on the cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Brenton, you, you brought out a really important point there, I believe. I'd just like to enlarge a little bit on, and that was when we have issues, which we all have in this world. Yes. And that's just part of it. I think sometimes Christians, so many, some Christians believe that you come to Jesus, he sorts out everything for you, and life's a breeze. But if you look at the life that Jesus led, it was quite a, a difficult life, and his followers had difficult lives as well. But one of the real important things, I think, is that when we have these issues, we bring them to Jesus and leave them with him. I often come across people who have these problems. They tell Jesus about them, but then they're trying to fix them themselves instead of realizing, look, Lord, this is out of my hands. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why. I've passed it over to you and just wait on the Lord. And as we know, the Lord doesn't do things in seconds and minutes, sometimes it's even years, but he has a plan that we cannot see, and I think that's a very important point. Now I'm going to ask, what is Jesus doing for us in heaven as a high priest? We, we have learned that there's a tabernacle in heaven, that Jesus is the high priest. So what's he actually doing for us? Glenn, would you like to start that one off? 
Yes, well, we read in Acts chapter 1 about Jesus' ascension back into heaven. So the question is then, what's he doing there? Is he twiddling his thumbs? Is he just enjoying the uh, good things that heaven has to offer? Has he sort of said, well, I've done it now. I don't need to um, bother with these sinners anymore. No, that's not the case at all. I want to read from Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 25, which says, Therefore he, this is Jesus, is able to save completely. King James Version says, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus is there interceding for us. He is, if you like, applying his blood to um, save us from our sins. It goes a bit like this. This is in my mind. We come to God and say, sorry, God, I, I made a big stuff up. Please forgive me. On what grounds does God have to forgive us? Uh, can he look back at our record and say, oh, yes, you helped that old lady cross the street. You gave the money to save these orphans or whatever. No, that's not good enough. Jesus simply holds up his hands, says, Father, forgive them. My blood covers them. So he intercedes for us. Then the text goes on to say, verse 26, Hebrews 7, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And I, I quoted from this text before, verse 27 of Hebrews 7, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice. So what's he doing in heaven? He intercedes for us and he is totally qualified to do that. I'd like to to back up what Len has just been saying but I'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And it says here, For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is a message that God gave to the world at just the right time. So literally the facts remain that, we human beings are separated from God and what separates us is our sin Mm -hmm. and we need a saviour, a way across the abyss, if you like, of sin back to God. And there's only one person in the universe is our mediator and can stand between us and God and bring us together again. And that text clearly states that it's Jesus. He is both God and man. He is fully divine and fully human. And Jesus' sacrifice brought new life to all people. That includes you and me. And I just praise him. Yes, he's definitely the intercessor. And that's what he's doing in heaven right now for us. And I praise him for that. Eddie, you you brought out a really important point there. I'd just like to emphasize again, and that is there's only one mediator between us and God. That is Jesus. There's no man. There's no angel. There's no other power either here or in heaven, is only Jesus. 
I'm reading from Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There are so many interesting metaphors in those two verses that you could just about preach a sermon on it. But the first one is when we accept that we have been forgiven, that's the justification bit, we have peace with God. Now, if you were to ask the average person today, what is the most important thing in their life? What would, if they were to have the choice of anything, what would they want? You'd probably get various answers, but I'd like to think that some would answer along these lines. I want peace in my life. I want peace with my, in my relationships, peace in my workplace, peace in my life. But most of all, the peace that it's talking about here in Romans 5 is peace with God. Do you know what? If you have peace with God, you will have peace in these other relationships. If you do not have peace with God, whatever peace you have in other relationships is going to be incomplete. And I believe this second section, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace. What is grace? We all know what grace is. Undeserved favour in which we stand. This suggests to me that Paul is talking present tense He's saying, because you have been justified by faith, because Christ has died for you and you have accepted that sacrifice on your behalf, you stand in a grace relationship. That means you have a firm foundation. And I think that's another aspect of Christ's high priestly ministry that's important. Each day, as we start each day, we need to recognize that the importance of recognizing that we stand in this grace relationship. The only reason God has to forgive us is because he loves us, not because of anything we've done or will do. He loves us because of who we are. He loves us in Christ because of the grace that he has poured out upon us. And when you start each day on that firm foundation of recognizing that you stand in a grace relationship, I believe the opportunities that God gives you to share with other people are limitless. Brenton, again, you've brought out a really, really important piece there, and, and that is, of course, the peace of God. Yes. So many people in the world today, the world is a complete mess. It's getting worse daily. There's so many things happening and people are so afraid. But if they have the peace of Jesus, they realize that God is ultimately in control. And if you're one of his, he will look after you. Joe, would you like to add a bit to this? Yes, actually, There's some wonderful points being brought through, but in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, there's a couple of verses in there that point out, again, to the reconciliation um, and access to the Father. And I think the point of all this, why why are we being told all this? And in, in verse 12, it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So knowing that Jesus is there, to reconcile us, to intercede on our behalf, that we may have boldness and have boldness in access with confidence, you know, that we may not be cringing away and to be afraid, but to be, to come before God and to actually believe in what's being done for us. So this is just in a nutshell, I guess. So um, Ephesians 2 verse 18 and chapter 3 verse 12 for those who want to look it up. 
Nick, would you like to finish on this particular subject? Ken, uh, just uh, before I uh, mention this and another attribute of Jesus Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, which is very important, I would like to mention again that today we are looking at this covenant, sanctuary covenant. Very interesting because we talked about covenant when uh, there are God's covenants which remains, you know, which are important. Now, even though today we may not have a sanctuary like uh, the Israelites had in the wilderness or like uh, the beautiful temple of Solomon, we still need to understand what happened in the sanctuary. And this is why it's very important for us not to dismiss the role of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, you know, in Christendom, very often, and we preach a lot about the life of Jesus on this earth, but but very little is being said about Jesus in heaven. Not many people, not many Christians, you not hear many preachers in the Christendom talking about the work of Jesus in heaven. And it was mentioned a bit earlier, what is Jesus just taking a holiday? Of course not. And I'd like to mention again here, as God came in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, to be with Israelites in that presence, then God takes special time to be in our favor, in a heavenly sanctuary. He could be busy in the whole universe, but he's still going to work the completion of our salvation. And in John, which I'm going to read in in John chapter 5, the other attribute which Jesus has in heaven, in verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son. And a little bit further down, verse 26 and 27 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. What that means, he's the one who represents us sinners. And everything what happened in heaven in the sanctuary, it's about us. It's not about the angels. It's not about those uh, unfallen uh, uh, beings. It's about us. That's why Sanctuary is very important. And a lot of people are even talking today to build another temple in Jerusalem. Now, I like to stress out this topic. It's not easy. Sanctuary is not easy. You need to go back to the Bible in the Old Testament and learn in detail the significance of the tabernacle and what that means. Every little thing which happened there was very important for us sinners. And everything else what happened in heaven is very important for us also as sinners now. And we need to understand the role of our Lord Jesus Christ, Savior in heaven today. Just before I go to Leon, I'd just like to again emphasize a really important point Nick, that you've brought out again, and that is that Jesus is working for everybody in this world 24-7. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He's watching everyone and trying to help everyone realize what's going on, what's happening, and the wonderful opportunity to have a wonderful life with him if you give his life to Jesus. Len? 
In Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, it says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Nick read John chapter 5, verse 22. It says, moreover, the Father judges no one, but the Father entrusts all judgment to the Son. All right, that's clear enough. So imagine it's my turn to be judged, and I stand before the judge, and I don't have a very good case to make for myself because I'm a sinner. However, the judge is Jesus, my advocate, if you like, my attorney for the defence is Jesus. My my mediator is Jesus. The one who sacrificed himself for me is Jesus. What chance have I got of losing the case? Well, none, because Jesus stands for fallen human beings who've confessed their sins and want to serve the Lord. So it's really good news about judgment because Jesus is our judge. Thank you, Liam. Oh, well, we can see that Jesus is our very own high priest interceding for us unto the Father. But is there more going on here? Am I right in saying we are coming to an epilogue and a warning? Helen, would you like to look into this one? Yes, I would very much in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. But before I do that, I'd like to link back to, if I may, the Israelites. And just pull a, a lesson out of that just just briefly. In Exodus 40, verse 38, the Israelites, they were once Egyptian slaves making bricks without straw. And here they were following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, carrying the tabernacle, as we mentioned, they built for God. Exodus begins in gloom and ends in glory. And for me, this parallels our progress through the Christian life. We begin as slaves to sin, we're redeemed by God, and we end our pilgrimage living with God forever. And I believe the lessons of the Israelites, we, we need to learn the, the way that they were so that we can um, follow in God's footsteps. But that brings me to the glory at the end, which is Revelation 22, um, 12 and 13. And it says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, it says, look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But it also goes on from there, if I may just go on a little further. It says, blessed are they who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Now, when they say about washing the robes, it's those who seek to purify themselves through Christ from a sinful way of life, striving daily to remain um, faithful and ready for Christ's return, which is very, very soon. But it also goes to say there's warnings through these texts. In verse 15, it says, Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshippers, and all who love to live a lie. Whoa! You know, we're all linked in here when we look at all these things, you know. We may not love to live a lie, but we do lie. And we don't, even though we may not mean to, we don't, we must not make it habitual. And then Jesus goes on in verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you a message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright and morning star. And I just love to look up in the heavens 
and see bright stars shining. And he goes on and gives us an invitation, a beautiful invitation, you know, and it extended to the whole world to come to Jesus and experience the joys of salvation in Christ. And I would read that in verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Come, there's your invitation. And he goes on, verse 18, and I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the words of prophecy written in this book, there then comes the warning. If anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. That's a warning to those who might purposely lead people astray. But, oh, and there's a similar warning in Deuteronomy as well that Moses gave but what an absolute um, promise he gives us. We don't know the day or the hour, but my friends, Jesus is coming soon. And I know panel, we're waiting for him. He will come unexpectedly for some people, but it's good news for those who trust him. Terrible message for those who reject him and stand under judgment. But soon could be at any moment. Praise God. Thank you. Well, panel, thank you for that today. That was really excellent. I hope our listeners have got a lot of fascinating information out of that, especially the fact that Jesus is working for us and not against us. He is He is our saviour in every respect. And I just hope that you take to heart all that has been said. I'd like to close now and I'd ask Brenton to close on a word of prayer. Thank you. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are our high priest that you are ministering in the heavenly sanctuary for us right now, that your blood covers us, that your life can be our life if we accept you as our Lord and Saviour. Thank you for this wonderful message that we have studied today in your word. I pray, Lord, that our hearts may be, as Paul said, that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Lord, may we go during the remainder of this time And remember always Christ's great sacrifice for us and what he is doing in heaven for us right now. May it soften our hearts. May it change us. May we be new people in Christ today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. This was a very interesting topic and maybe not as easy to, um, you know, understand and understand. draw some good lessons but um, very important and we have the bible uh, to look into a little bit more to understand if we need but uh, next week we have a very good one again covenant faith and uh, we are going to learn a little bit more how to walk uh, in the footsteps of jesus faithfully today uh, we may not uh, touch as much on the aspect of the priesthood of jesus as it was in the old testament and how it is today but looking forward to learn more in the next uh, bible study please uh, come back with us until then may god richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of jesus